Welcome to EJB Talks, Rutgers Blaustein School Experts in Policy, Planning, and Health, where we talk with our faculty and staff experts, as well as students, about how the fields of public policy, urban planning, public health, health administration, and public and urban informatics affect your lives. Welcome to another episode of EJB Talks. I'm Stuart Shapiro, the Associate Dean of Faculty at the Blaustein School, and the purpose of this podcast is to talk with my colleagues and our alumni about issues affecting people in New Jersey, the United States, and the world. Today, after three episodes on the George Floyd protests, we return to COVID-19. Lisa Gullah teaches epidemiology at the Blaustein School. Recently, she's also been helping out Bridgewater Township here in New Jersey as their disease investigator since COVID hit. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, we have a wide-ranging audience. Some people know public health very well. Others know policy, planning, other things. Um, So I was wondering if we could start out by you giving a basic explanation of what epidemiology is. Sure. So um, by definition, it's the technical term would be study of the distribution and determinants of health-related states and events in specified populations. And then the application of that is what we use to control health problems. In other words, it's the method we use to find the causes of health outcomes and diseases in populations. Um, in epidemiology, the patient is actually the community and individuals are, are really viewed collectively. Very good. Well, that the, the public in public health, in other words. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of us, certainly including me, um, have become what I would call armchair or amateur epidemiologists in the past three months, uh, swallowing up data about the spread of COVID-19, trying to figure out what's going to happen, whether my kids are going to go to school in the fall, um, whether or not I'm going to go back to work in person in the fall or in the spring. Um, we read a story, we jump to conclusions about COVID-19 getting better or getting worse. Um, so let me ask you sort of as someone who knows the field well, um, when you see the media coverage about COVID-19, what could they be doing better in terms of communication? So I would love to say that initially, really, the media has been really um, pretty diligent on distributing the different epi curves and charts showing the progression of the pandemic. I think the issue really comes in the interpretation. Um, Often numbers can be manipulated to serve the focus of the story they want to tell. And I think it's that interpretation where the media can be more responsible and diligent. Um, You know, I've had or we've had, you know, towns, counties, and the state, they all put this, these data pieces out, like you said, the case counts and different statistics on their websites. And, you know, obviously they're trying to do it to be transparent and communicate what's going on locally. But, um, you know, residents started to get concerned because the information that was being reported wasn't matching across all of these different venues. So, Um, And then on top of it, you have the media picking it up and using county or state data. I know one point I read an article on which towns have the highest case counts and highest death rates. Um, So the problem with that information is all of our data is a moment in time. So if the town I was working for collected it at 8 a.m. 
and the state at 11 a.m. and the county at 3 p.m., there's no way that everything's gonna match because new cases would come in all day long as the labs reported. Um, and then kind of like you said, Stuart, a lot of the people would decide to be armchair epis and right. they would do their own calculations and you know, they'd look at percentages of deaths compared to case counts. And another problem with that was um, the sample size was just too small to make a true and valid statement um, and are you using the percentage based on the number of the deaths based on the number of cases or were you doing it based on the number of people in the entire town two totally different results <laughs> right so should we i mean you mentioned the moment in time problem should we be looking at sort of rates of change and seven day averages and and things like that rather than sort of data at a moment in time i think what it would have to be is you need to look at the same piece of data each day right. because that's the report out. So you can't compare what the county has written for your town compared to what your town is reporting they have. Right. So it's whomever right. you're using, stick with it. But so, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but that's not what happens. So unfortunately, right. we get apples to oranges. So even with that, I mean, there's still context that you need because if you're looking at cases, that's going to change as the number of tests changes. Absolutely. And that's um, a whole nother uh, component of it. So as we started doing uh, long-term care centers became obviously because of their high risk became a, a high focus in the state of New Jersey. And so the governor, when he issued the order that uh, we had to use a test that all long-term care facilities needed to use a test-based strategy, we expected a surge cases um, because there was asymptomatic people that hadn't went gone to be tested because the uh, the rules were unless you were showing symptoms you shouldn't be going to get a test save them for everyone else sure so yeah so the numbers would definitely fluctuate and then ironically what would happen another way for the numbers is in the morning if I got up in the morning and I looked at my um, list of new cases, and maybe I saw 25 new cases because they all had the addresses of the long-term care facility. But if it was employees, I then now had to transfer those cases to the town for that local health department to continue following up. So it really wasn't a case in my town, but if they were reporting it based on 8 a.m., and then probably by one o'clock in the afternoon, we had a big change in numbers. Right. Um, obviously, the question of opening up the economy is a complex one and one very much on everybody's mind. Given everything you've said, um, what would you like to see officials be thinking about? What benchmarks, uh, et cetera, should they contemplate uh, from a public health perspective as they weigh this question? So that's definitely a, a, a multi-dimensional question. If we're talking about cases, then we have to monitor, are we seeing an uptick again? Um, are we seeing that it's flattening? Um, when we're looking at opening up from an overall public health perspective, um, we need to help towns you know, focus on how to get the community open again, but um, keep the public health perspective in the forefront. So what does that really mean? It means we have to consider how we're gonna enforce the regulations that are put into place 
to maintain the health of our community. If someone, and this actually ironically happened to me the other day, if someone walks into a store with no mask, how do we know that the store owners are going to insist they leave without losing more business? Right. You know, what type of staffing levels do we need to get back out there to inspect the pools, the youth camps, the restaurants so they can open, which was, you know, a normal task before. And now there's other issues we have to be aware of. Who's going to make sure the pools are enforcing the, um, the mask restrictions and whether they should, they're allowed to wear a mask or when they can. And, you know, um, really looking at those issues. And then on top of it, public health has to start addressing some of the issues that we usually take care of that generally took a backseat to COVID. So immunizations, I'm sure you've heard about, lead investigation, public health nuisance complaints. So, um, you know, and as we do start opening up, there's going to be people who ignore the regulations like um, what I had just mentioned, or there's others that are going to do everything right and are still going to end up contracting the virus, you know, um, which leads into a little bit of the contact tracing that uh, the governor has put into effect. So we have to balance all of this out with needing to reopen for the financial and mental health of our residents. Um, so, yeah, like you said, pretty complex. <laughs> yeah, multidimensional captures it nicely, uh, as you noted there. Um, let, let me turn to your other position, because I think our listeners will be interested on the on-the-ground perspective. What does it mean to be a disease investigator? So um, that's really, the basically, when you're a disease investigator, you're responsible for investigating um, any situation concerning an individual who may have been in contact with a communicable disease which could potentially result in um, them becoming infected. Um, One aspect of this includes the contact tracing uh, that I was just mentioning that the governor is putting into place. And, but overall, when you're doing case investigations, we have our public health staff that works with a patient to help them um, really recall everyone with whom they had close contact with during the timeframe when they might've been infectious. Um, Then the public health staff has to uh, begin tracing, um, doing the contact tracing by warning those that were exposed of their potential exposure um, as quickly and sensitively as possible while maintaining patient privacy, which I'm sure you're aware if somebody says you're potentially exposed, they're like, well, who, where, how, you know, Um, and we can only tell them that they may have been exposed. Um, they can't be told the identity because we need to protect that person. Uh, actually it's, it's interesting because when we started in March and, and this is nothing new to public health. This is what we do all the time. It's part of our statutory obligation. Um, it's just a little bit more in the forefront now because of, um, the call for contact tracers. Um, but we were doing this back in March when COVID first began. And um, it's really not a new strategy. Um, And we, it was interesting because I remember when we first were doing it, I had like a five page document that you had to fill out with every place they went and everyone they may have seen. And then, you know, a lot of people were like, oh yeah, I told this person already, or I told that person already, or I put it on Facebook. that's okay. But when I call them and then other people are like, well, who are you going to tell? 
you know, and, and so it's, you know, it's definitely a little scary. So you have to balance that. Um, and I think the other thing that's important to know with contact tracing or disease investigation is that um, this work doesn't just go away. It goes behind the scenes. Every year we do this, whether it's the flu, you know, a flu outbreak at a long-term care facility or a norovirus outbreak at um, a daycare or lead poisoning investigations, foodborne illnesses. Um, even when we're looking at like, if you talk about bigger picture, impacts of natural disasters, like we still are doing, um, maybe not contact tracing, but we're still doing that epidemiology of the impact of Hurricane Sandy or um, something that I think is going to be really big is the determinants of health or and um, health equity, how it impacted our communities, especially during COVID. You know, right. things like insecurity, domestic violence, um, institutional racism, you know, everything's been coming out and coming to light in a very forward manner right now. And I'm just hoping people, when things quiet down, don't forget about it. Right. We had a great episode a, uh, a few weeks back with Professor Don Muzan on the uh, equity implications of, of COVID. Um, you mentioned the contact tracing, um, and you also mentioned privacy. Um, do you use, you're not at the point where you're using cell phone data. Um, I'm, oh, no, no, no. You mean yeah. like people were concerned about the tracking them? <laughs> right. I mean, some countries like South Korea have used right. cell phone data extensively. Um, but here we are we are quite resistant to that idea. We absolutely are. No, I have not heard about us using that at all. Right. The, it's a fascinating question. I mean, it, it's one of those things that would almost undoubtedly save lives, but it impinges upon important values in, in the country there. And honestly, uh, that's a lot of public health. Right. You know, when we passed seatbelt laws, people felt that we were infringing on their choice. Yeah, I'm a little more I'm a little more sympathetic to the people worried about uh, uh, cell phone data than, than seatbelt <laughs> laws, frankly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yes, absolutely. Concerning concept. People are telling us what to do. That's the issue, you know, and, right. and watching over and controlling us and the red light cameras. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> Yes, indeed, indeed. What has surprised you most on the ground uh, during the uh, the past couple months of COVID? So I don't know if surprise is the right word. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing, honestly, nothing in public health surprises me. <laughs> uh -huh. But there are definitely some things I've been a little disappointed about. Um, you know, talking a little bit like I was saying before, really the public not heeding our advice or our warnings or... I've heard people say this isn't really that bad. It's it's a made up issue, um, you know, and this included people who were still going out when they had symptoms or they even waited for test results. Um, I had one person when I was doing um, my initial disease investigations early on and I asked her where she had gone. She says, well, you know, after I went to the doctor and had my test, I figured I'm probably going to be negatives. But just in case I wasn't, I knew I'd go to, I was going to be quarantined for a while. So I went to Costco and I went to Target and I went to Walmart and I asked if we wore a mask. And she's like, well, the doctor's office had given me one. But then when I left, I took it off. So that just, you know, 
it, it, it disappoints me, you know, and people are still putting others at risk. You know, just like I said, I saw somebody walk into a store with no mask and nobody said anything. And then when somebody did go to say something, he literally um, put his hand over his mouth and nose and plugged it as he still waited <laughs> for the restaurant. So, wow. or the register. Wow. So it's like, you know, the risk for these new outbreaks and surgeons are, surges are going to remain if we let our guard down. Right. And I people mean, so uh, up, they want to let their guard down, you know? Yeah, you get to the, uh, I mean, you get to the, some of the things I'm interested in, in politics and, and policy, the polarization of public <laughs> health information has been remarkable and remarkably fast over the last two months. Right. And then the other thing I would say that that kind of disappointed me again, not surprised me, but the criticism, you know, um, we weren't doing enough. We were doing too much. We were exaggerating. Um, You know, I think there are a lot of people out there that do appreciate what's been done to protect the public's health. But unfortunately, we only hear those that have the complaints, which could actually go back to your media question. (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly, and uh, I mean, you look at what happened to Amy Acton, the uh, the public health commissioner in Ohio, um, vilified for uh, for bringing science to these discussions, um, and it really it's really a bad sign. Um, let me uh, ask you, sort of, what long term lessons, if any, for public health do you think we should draw from the past few months? So. Um... You know, I always talk in my classes that public health is only recognized when it fails. And that doesn't mean that the public health system failed. But when there's an outbreak or other event where public health is thrown into the forefront, you know, when public health is successful, nobody really knows what we're doing (laughs) to keep people safe and how important we are. Um, And I, I think and I hope that this has shown the actual importance of public health on our entire economy and that critical need for investment in public health. I, I think, um, I know a lot of people are talking now about um, public health is sexy. And so we're going to see potentially a resurgence or more people enrolling in schools of public health, which I think is great. Um, yeah. But my biggest thing is we need to teach the up and coming and our current staff on um, advocating because there's been a lot of focus and albeit very justified on our acute care and first responders in hospitals. And they're definitely heroes, but public health has been working this entire time to monitor, control, and prevent the spread of this disease. We've had thousands of public health professionals from local health departments all over the state that are working seven days a week, you know, almost 24 seven to limit the spread. And, um, you know, we've really done a great job responding to it. We've had, um, to date, on over well over 165,000 positive cases of COVID-19 that had been investigated by local health departments, which therefore turns into like tens of thousands more contact tracing calls. Um, and you know, we've done all this while being understaffed and underfunded as a whole, um, and then really working on knowing our communities and making sure that. We're addressing food insecurity um, or other issues that are coming up in response to this. 
Right. I want to take advantage of what you said there to plug our undergraduate public health major um, and uh, encourage any uh, any college students listening out there to, to, to check it out. Rutgers students um, and certainly our health administration major and master's degree as well. Um, a big thank you. Thank you, Lisa, for coming on. Oh, thank you. Um, and also a big thank you to our production team, Tamara Swedberg, Amy Cobb, and Karen Olson. We'll be back next week with another talk from another expert from the Weilstein School. Until then, thanks for listening.